This week, ESL makes $4.6 billion bid for Sears Go Forward business. Catalina enters grace period after missed interest payment. Neiman reports record-setting Cyber Monday. More on this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Connor Skelding, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, Reorg's financial analyst team discusses EBITDA, when it's not appropriate to use management's reported number, and when it is not a good measure of cash flow. Names they discuss include Avon, McDermott, and Monotronics. It's Sunday, December 9th. Sears announced the results of its medium term note auction on Tuesday, indicating that the sale was completed on November 28th. Cyrus Capital Partners paid $82.5 million for the $880.7 million in aggregate principal in accordance with a note purchase agreement entered into by and among the debtors and Cyrus. Also through the agreement, Cyrus waived its right to payment on $629.5 million of MTNs. On Thursday evening, Omega Advisors filed a motion seeking to invalidate the sale to Cyrus. Omega says that in Tuesday's announcement, the debtors disclosed, quote, for the first time that the debtors had announced a proposed sale of, quote, no more than $251 million in MTNs in an auction authorized by the sale order. The amount of MTNs sold was actually much more. As such, Omega seeks to invalidate approximately $650 million in MTNs issued by Sears Roebuck Acceptance Corporation, or SRAC. The motion also seeks to invalidate what Omega characterizes as, quote, the clandestine agreement between the debtors and Cyrus not to sell an additional $1.4 billion in MTNs held by a non-debtor affiliate, Sears Reinsurance. Omega argues that the debtors effectively sold the value of their entire lot of $2.3 billion of MTNs to Cyrus, and that no other bidder that relied on the court documents was aware of the debtors' efforts. Meanwhile, on Thursday morning, the Sears debtors disclosed in a Schedule 13D filing that on December 5th, funds affiliated with ESL Investments submitted an indication of interest and made an indicative bid for substantially all of the Sears debtors' go-forward retail footprint and assets. ESL's indicative bid contemplates a total purchase price of approximately $4.6 billion, which includes a $1.8 billion credit bid component. ESL says in the letter that the bid is conditioned upon... First, confirmation of its right to credit bid its secured debt without any requirement to cash collateralize or otherwise backstop any portion of the credit bid. And second, a full release by the debtors of ESL from any liability related to any pre-petition transactions. Sources told Reorg this week that Catalina did not make a November 30th interest payment on its term loans, and a company representative told Reorg that Catalina entered into a five-business-day grace period under its credit agreement. Reorg also learned that the company filed cleansing materials earlier in the week disclosing certain financial projections and details of Chapter 11 restructuring proposals. The proposals were made to an ad hoc group of first lien term loan lenders and an ad hoc group of second lien term loan lenders. The company said that as of December 3rd, at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, it had not reached an agreement with the two ad hoc groups on a proposed transaction. Catalina said discussions continue. The ad hoc group of first lien lenders has exchanged, quote, several proposals with the second liens, according to the cleansing materials, and Catalina said that on November 16th, the ad hoc group of first liens proposed restructuring terms that include lenders providing $125 million in new money dip financing, 
and an additional $40 million in incremental new money at exit. The new money financing would come alongside a roll-up of $150 million in pre-petition revolver and term debt. Marble Ridge issued a letter to the Neiman board on Monday, a couple of days after the company's filing of cleansing documents late on Friday, November 30th. The cleansing documents relate to negotiations with restricted debt holders that had been ongoing as the company aims to address its capital structure and push out maturities. The disclosures included terms of proposed transactions by the company and two creditor groups, an ad hoc group of bondholders represented by advisors Paul Weiss and Houlihan Loki, and an ad hoc group of term loan lenders represented by Wachtel, Lipton, and Ducera. A key point of contention appears to be the fate of My Teresa and whether Neiman will transfer the asset back to an entity that would allow lenders to recover value from it. In the Marble Ridge letter, the hedge fund says that, quote, the valuable My Teresa assets must be returned to Neiman Marcus Group Limited LLC, and the pervasive conflicts of interest that enabled these valuable assets to be improperly stripped for no consideration must be resolved. Neiman is advised by Kirkland and Ellis, Lazard, and Mollison Company. Later in the week, on Thursday, Neiman reported earnings for the first quarter of its 2019 fiscal year, with management saying that the company's discussions with lenders and investors, quote, to improve its balance sheet, have only recently formally commenced. Management added that it views the negotiations as a, quote, ongoing process that will likely take time, but noted that it believes that the company has ample runway and that the parties can reach a mutually beneficial solution. As for earnings, Neiman reported comparable revenues up 2.8% versus last year and adjusted EBITDA up 10.6%. Going into more detail, CFO Adam Orvos said that the U.S. operations showed a 1.7% year-over-year increase in comparable sales basis and total online revenue up by 8.9% year-over-year. Management said that the company experienced a strong Black Friday and Cyber Week with a, quote, record-setting Cyber Monday. In Puerto Rico's Title III case, parties on Monday appeared before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit for argument tied to Judge Laura Taylor Swain's rulings on the Appointments Clause. Arguments closely tracked briefs submitted by Aurelius, Assured Guarantee, and UTIR, with the first two parties insisting that the appointment of the PROMISA Oversight Board was unconstitutional and that its actions, including commencement of the Title III cases, are void. Aurelius and Assured Guarantee urged the First Circuit to reverse the District Court's opinion and to dismiss the Title III proceedings, while noting that the First Circuit may stay its mandate pending reappointment of a new oversight board, quote, consistent with the Appointments Clause. Oral arguments were heard by a three-judge panel, which did not provide any time frame on the ultimate ruling. Assured Guarantee published an analysis of Act 154's tax assumptions, claiming that Promisa, quote, egregiously employed, quote, overly pessimistic and, quote, outcome-driven projections with respect to Medicaid assumptions underlying the fiscal plan. Quote, this outcome-driven approach towards aggressively conservative forecasts is presumably intended to ensure future outperformance against projections while providing leverage for the government parties in debt negotiations. The real impact, however, is to keep the island mired in litigation with no foreseeable access to the capital markets, which are necessary to fund infrastructure and support future economic growth, the analysis reads. And on Wednesday, Rosello announced that central government employees will begin receiving their Christmas bonuses. The development comes on the heels of the governor's announcement last Friday that the administration is postponing for three months, until March 31, 2019, a proposed reduction of the government's health insurance contribution for public corporation employees. 
the certified Commonwealth fiscal plan calls for the elimination of the Christmas bonus and for a uniform government health insurance contribution monthly for all government workers at $125 per month. On Thursday, Rosello announced that five proponents, which include, quote, regulated international energy companies, responded to a request for qualifications related to a long-term concession to manage and operate the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's electric power transmission and distribution system. PREPA is also moving ahead with privatizing its generation facilities, selecting a new Fortress Energy subsidiary to renovate and operate two generation units in its San Juan power plant, company officials told Reorg in a statement on Thursday. The administration wants to complete privatization of the utility by 2020. Other top red stories of the week were J. Crew ordered to disclose certain communications between third party advisors and Weil. Waypoint, first day hearing, adjourned to December 10th, and no wildfire liability bill introduced at California legislature's last meeting of 2018, SB901 sponsor calls PG&E, quote, too big to fail. And now, here's Jim Holloway in Texas with the week ahead. Well, thank you, Connor, and good morning, subs and non-subs, and it's good to be back after a couple weekends in some of the more remote corners of the great state of Texas, and there's lots to keep us on our toes this week. Monday, December 10th, the first day hearing for Waypoint, which was, of course, adjourned from December 6th, and this just in. On Saturday, Waypoint reached a definitive agreement to sell itself to Macquarie Group for $650 million. Uh, Macquarie, which seems to dab on a little bit of everything, actually has a business unit called Macquarie Rotorcraft Leasing, which will absorb Waypoint's helicopters and employ the Waypoint staff, which is some good news right now around Christmas. And there's also also some business related to Monotronics, specifically the expiration of their exchange offer. On Tuesday, December 11th, there's a non-evidentiary status conference in iHeart. Wednesday, December 12th, third quarter earnings and a call for tailored brands and Monotronics again, this time the TSA Transactions Consummation Milestone. Sounds interesting. Thursday, December 13th, a double feature for Toys R Us, the Asia JV asset sale and a confirmation hearing for the Taj debtors. In Sears, there's an auction for the home improvement business, which is known as SHIP, S-H-I-P, and a combined plan and DS hearing for Dixie Electric. Friday, December 14th, a second day hearing for LBI Media. And on Saturday, December 14th, the coupon is due on the 7 and 3 quarters of 2021 issued by Sanchez Energy, headquartered here in Houston and led by Tony Sanchez III. Now, y'all may have noticed that I like to throw in an interesting little factoid into my segments, and here's this week's. Deep roots in Texas, the Sanchez family. Thomas Sanchez, founded Laredo, Texas, is in the streets of Laredo, the old cowboy song recorded by Johnny Cash and others, way back in 1755. Just parenthetically, I'll inject that my folks were still in Virginia then, having arrived about 100 years earlier. Anyways, the Sanchez family had wealth on both sides of the border, but apparently the branch in Mexico lost a lot in the Mexican Revolution. Um, Tony Sanchez I, and this would be Tony III's grandfather, ran an office supply place in Laredo and later founded the Bank of Commerce, which, as the International Bank of Commerce, is still a major presence in Texas. He and his son Tony II got into the energy business and discovered a huge natural gas field in Webb County. Tony II ran for governor against Rick Perry, among other accomplishments. 
Tony III, of course, went to Georgetown, was an investment banker for a while, and now heads up Sanchez Energy. So quite an interesting family and fellow Texans, of course. And that's all from me. Thank you one and all. Thanks, Jim. We'll be following all of that and more this week. Now, Mark Fisher sits down with part of the financial analyst team at Reorg to discuss when EBITDA should not be used as a measure of cash flow. Thanks, Connor. So, we're here today to talk about an issue that's near and dear to my heart, which is namely why management's view of EBITDA is not always the view that I think uh, people should have when trying to ascertain uh, cash flow of the company, which um, uh, ultimately, uh, as uh, people that look at debt, that's something that we're you know, pretty focused on. Uh, so EBITDA is, is obviously a very big measure in the industry. A lot of people use it as a proxy uh, for cash flow, uh, particularly for cash flow before financing considerations, before um, uh, capital considerations. Uh, but we're going to talk about a few companies where EBITDA should not really be used as, as a proxy for uh, cash flow. And uh, when we look at it here at Reorg, we make a number of adjustments to, um, to exclude certain things and um, and, and really try and figure out what the cash flow is. So I'm joined by um, a few of our members from the uh, from our analyst team, Yashwant Chanduru, who is going to be talking about Avon, Stephen Opper, who is going to be talking about McDermott, and Andrew Sung, who is going to be talking about Monotronics. And for each of these companies, we've highlighted a few things that uh, make that are pretty unique actually to each one um, that make EBITDA not exactly representative of uh, a company's um, cash flow. And, and as a result, we make a number of adjustments uh, here at Reorg, which I said earlier. So let's start. Let's jump right into that. Uh, let's jump right into it. Uh, Yash uh, is going to talk to us about Avon, um, the uh, beauty, fashion, home products company um, uh, that operates through a direct selling channel. Uh, and he has identified a number of reasons why EBITDA is not, um, should not be used as a proxy for, for cash flow and makes a number of adjustments uh, there, mostly uh, a lot of which uh, is due to accrual versus um, cash accounting. So with that, uh, Yash, why don't you take it away? Sure thing. Thanks, Mark. So as you previewed, and I'm, as I'm sure most of you are familiar with, Avon um, sells beauty, fashion, home products through the direct selling channel. And this means that the company sells to representatives, often via credit, who, and these representatives essentially act as mobile storefronts, and they in turn sell to the final customer. And from time to time, representatives will return products for refunds, for many different reasons, or they may fail to pay on outstanding payables that are owned to Avon, which the company accounts for using allowances on their balance sheet for sales returns and for doubtful accounts, among some other things. And Avon typically recognizes revenue when products get delivered to a representative, adjusted for variable consideration, which includes the things we mentioned, such as sales returns and uh, late payments estimated based on historical data. And specifically regarding bad debt expense, it's really an inherent risk of uh, the direct selling model and its reliance on individual representatives, some of whom, as we mentioned, are sent products on credit. So these Avon reps, they sell the product that they order from Avon to their end customers. And at the end of each sales campaign, um, which typically lasts 
uh, three to four weeks, the reps uh, remit payments back to the company. And if you look at bad debt expense and sales returns on a combined basis, they've been increasing as a percentage of kind of Avon's gross sales for the past three fiscal years. Um, in 2015, it was about 5.3% of gross sales. And in 2017, it shot up to about 7.3% of gross sales. And this implies that essentially the net revenue that Avon is generating under underperforms the gross revenue that they've um, generated over that time. And if bad debt and returns continue to rise, especially at rates that are greater than uh, the company estimates via these allowance accounts that we talked about, the company's cash flow generation could um, be hindered by these increased deductions to these allowance accounts over time. And another factor that um, is important to consider for Avon, maybe uh, a, a little bit unique to Avon and also some other companies that we follow, is that it has consistent restructuring costs over time. And typically, if you have restructuring charges, they get added back to a company's EBITDA because they're seen as kind of one-off, uh, one-time expenses. You know, if you do it right, you only have to restructure once. But Avon has had significant restructuring expenses dating back many years. And specifically, their cash restructuring charges over the last five years have averaged more than $40 million annually. And additionally, given that Avon um, had a new CEO, Jan Zierveld, come in earlier this year, he stressed the importance of a company-wide transformation across kind of many aspects of the, of the company to modernize the brand. So Avon might, might experience significant restructuring costs going forward as well. So I think you know, there's definitely an argument that um, for this company specifically, restructuring charges can be considered as go-forward costs of the business. And um, you know, it's an important factor to think about when you're assessing the earnings potential of Avon. And so as you can imagine, the accrual to cash accounting adjustments are not um, picked up in full on the income statement. And these cash restructuring charges are not included when the company's management calculates its EBITDA. So incorporating both these factors, we estimated that in 2017, Avon's actual cash flow generation may have been approximately $86.2 million. Um, after cash restructuring charges, which is about $32.5 million less than what was implied by the company-defined adjusted operating income. Great, Yash. Um, thank you. That that was um, you know really helpful, and it's good for everybody to think about um, you know also as, as you're looking at companies who their customers are, uh, which which in this case um, certainly affects what they actually receive in cash, as you mentioned, versus what they might um, think they will receive um, when a product is is sold. But you really want to pay attention to what uh, the company is actually receiving, and 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 definitely also a good lesson here on restructuring and um, when certain items might not be one time. Um, uh, so certainly a, a company that we're going to continue to look at. Um, another one that we wanted to move on to uh, for entirely different reasons, um, cash is not representative of, of EBITDA here, um, is McDermott, uh, which uh, this, for this one, uh, you know, we pay particular close attention uh, to working capital changes, which you know obviously are not included in EBITDA, but certainly affect um, cash flow. So uh, with, with that, Stephen, why don't you take it away? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, so for McDermott, we've looked at this company uh, in a couple different ways, and 
some of the issues that we found uh, when comparing EBITDA to cash flow are timing related, uh, as you mentioned, with working capital. And also, um, we've also identified a couple interesting issues, uh, uh, unique aspects to certain um, acquisitions that and, and changes in estimates and costs that McDermott has made recently that have also impacted the, uh, the use of EBITDA as a proxy. Um, in general, McDermott uses what's called the percentage of completion accounting, um, which can lead to, to distortions between revenue recognition and various cash receipts or outflows. Uh, since the company has long-term projects, the accounting for revenue recognition is based on uh, the percentage of estimated costs for a particular project that have been incurred to that date. Um, so at the same time, uh, the timing of billings and receipts on any particular project doesn't always sync up with the percentage of completion for that particular project. So as uh, you know, if the company receives payments uh, at various points, they may not have actually um, earned the revenue uh, that that's, uh, that compares the level of payment um, at any given time. And so for McDermott in, uh, in particular, the company has operated in an overbuilt position uh, based on historic practices um, at a company that they purchased called Chicago Bridge and Iron. Uh, Chicago Bridge and Iron was often in a negative working capital position because the company would essentially use some of those upfront payments that we discussed uh, as financing um, and uh, as a form of financing for uh, the project going forward and also for uh, other projects that the, the company was, was uh, undertaking. Um, and uh, at the unwind of that position can, that negative working capital position can be at odds with the direction uh, of EBITDA as we saw during the third quarter uh, this past quarter, uh, the company reported $239 million of uh, reported adjusted EBITDA, uh, but negative $221 million of operating cash flow during the same period. So, you know, they were in very different directions. Uh, there are two additional elements that have contributed and exacerbated the divergence uh, that, that can happen uh, because of this accounting. Uh, the first is that McDermott uh, as I mentioned before, the company purchased Chicago Bridge and Iron, and Chicago Bridge and Iron had a number of contracts um, uh, that, that were very large, significant, but have had major cost overruns. And the, the way that the company accounts for changes in cost estimates, whenever uh, there's a, it's determined that a particular project is going to be in a lost position, that the entire loss for that project, even amounts that are uh, for periods going forward, is supposed to be recognized during the period where that loss is determined. And so that in and of itself uh, creates a you know, distortion potentially between you're pulling some of the, the lower probability from the future to the current period. So that can create a distortion between uh, EBITDA and some of the cash flows. But what's interesting is uh, actually the company has accounted for those changes in estimates uh, with uh, purchase price accounting uh, since it's went within one year of the acquisition of Chicago Bridge and Iron which adds another wrinkle because uh, instead of recognizing that loss, as I mentioned, uh, during the current period, they've actually just been adjusting um, some of the accounts on their balance sheet. Uh, and so those charges actually don't actually hit the, the income statement. Um, and so it creates a, a, an even larger divergence between 
EBITDA and uh, and some of the working capital accounts. Thanks, Stephen. So the last company that we wanted to talk about today was Monotronics, a home security uh, business. And there, uh, I don't know if it's the way the, the company thinks about um, their, uh, their expenses, what's an expense, what's a capital expense, uh, but certainly EBITDA uh, does not seem to be representative of, of cash flow here. So Andrew, why don't you uh, walk us through what you believe uh, EBITDA uh, is or what you believe cash flow should look like uh, versus what the company defines as EBITDA. Sure. So uh, Monotronics is a business that has generated positive EBITDA within a range of $250 million to $350 million over the last four years. But EBITDA is not inclusive of a very large recurring cash outlay of the business to acquire new subscribers. Uh, so when including this cash outlay, the company has actually burned free cash on a levered basis over the last four years. Uh, to, provide, to provide some context, uh, Monotronics, which is the operating subsidiary of Ascent Capital Group, is a security alarm monitoring company whose customer base is party to contract agreements of three to five years. So for each subscriber under contract, the company receives monthly recurring revenue of around $45. Uh, as of the end of the third quarter of 2018, the company had about 940,000 subscribers, uh, but this is a figure which has declined for the last uh, 13 consecutive fiscal quarters. Uh, the company's primary asset is its sub- subscriber base. Uh, the company has historically experienced an annual subscriber attrition rate in the mid-teens. Uh, subscriber attrition can occur for a number of reasons, uh, with the primary factors being a customer moving residences or a customer reaching the end of contract term. Uh, so to replenish its subscriber base uh, in an effort to maintain recurring revenue streams, the company must acquire new subscribers. But the challenge currently facing the company is that this cost of subscriber acquisitions requires material upfront costs uh, to the point where the company has been unable to cost-effectively replace canceled accounts with new accounts, and this has led to the the trend of subscriber declines. Uh, On average, the company's upfront costs to acquire subscribers is about 35 times recurring monthly revenue. So in other words, uh, on average, the company does not break even on a subscriber until after about 35 months which makes it critical for the company to renew its subscribers beyond three years. Uh, so just getting back to the question as to why EBITDA is not indicative of cash flow in this case, it's important to note that the company acquires its subscribers through two channels, uh, the first one being the authorized independent dealers, and the second one is direct-to-consumer. Uh, so for now, just focusing on the dealer channel, uh, the company outsources its sales and installation functions to a network of independent service providers and these service providers will not retain the security alarm monitoring contracts and will instead sell the monitoring contracts to Monotronics at a price based on a multiple of recurring monthly revenue. So over half of the company's subscribers acquired are through this dealer channel, and notably the upfront costs to acquire uh, customers are capitalized rather than expensed. So the dealer channel acquisition costs are not reflected on the income statement and thus not included in EBITDA. Rather, they're reflected on the cash flow statement. So while the company's actual CapEx figures are relatively small, the cost to acquire subscribers through the dealer channel should probably be thought of as an extension of CapEx, given that replenishing its subscriber base is a continual and necessary cost to uh, replenish the asset base of the business. So just to summarize, uh, while the business has historically generated positive EBITDA, EBITDA ignores a large and recurring component of the company's cost base. 
and uh, including the subscriber acquisitions costs of the dealer channel in addition to CapEx, uh, I think helps illustrate that the company has burned cash on a levered basis uh, for the last four years, which fully reflects the ongoing costs of the business. Great, Andrew, thank you for that uh, that run through and um, thanks to everyone that came on. Steven, Yasha, uh, really appreciate it. And to our uh, listeners that are also subscribers, um, you'll see a lot in our stories where we will put down company reported EBITDA and we'll also put down reorg uh, EBITDA as well. And now you know why we made those distinctions and why we feel it's important to look for the cash EBITDA uh, number, try and figure out what that cash EBITDA is versus relying just on reported EBITDA. Uh, So thank you everybody. And Connor, back to you. Thanks, Mark. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg podcasts on the media page. If you're not a subscriber, you can find them on iTunes and on SoundCloud. I'm Connor Skelding, and this has been The Week in Reorg.